This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing that these several days have been with these faithful and devoted young people from around the country and around the world. I've been inspired to see their enthusiasm and their devotion and know that the church is in good hands for the future with young people so interested in the Bible and Bible study and outreach. We pray for your Holy Spirit in our midst here as we tackle this important question. May our eyes be opened. May we have a deeper uh, and richer view of this important topic as we look at both church history and uh, reformers and how they can help us as we study the Bible for ourselves. We pray these things this afternoon in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit about my background. Um, professor at Andrews University in the seminary, church history department. I have a degree in theology and developed an interest in church and state. Went to law school, practiced law for nearly a dozen years, uh, largely in the area of religious freedoms and church and state. And then I was sponsored by the church to go and study uh, church history. And uh, I teach at the seminary at Andrews. Um, I have been interested in this topic of righteousness by faith and the final generation ever since I was a teenager and began studying it in the church. Um, Part of the theme that I've developed over the last few sessions here in looking at history, one of the reasons that we need the help of history is that our own church is impacted by the culture that we're in and the influences that we're in. And there's two influences that I've talked particularly about that have impacted Adventism, impacted larger Christianity, of which Adventism is a part. In the early 20th century, there was a rise in response to scientism and empiricism and the need for certainty in any kind of truth field. Christianity as a whole responded in one of two ways. Uh, One group, um, we call them the fundamentalists, responded by saying, yes, the Bible is absolutely certain and perfect, and we can prove that to everybody. And uh, that was where the theory of verbal inspiration developed, that every word of Scripture was given by God and the Bible is absolutely perfectly consistent and can be proved to be such. Um, Now, you'll recognize that Ellen White and our pioneers didn't embrace that uh, form of inspiration. Uh, They understood that it was more of a thought inspiration that God works on the the human being, the man, and there's the involvement of the human in choosing the words. Uh, So there was a kind of artificial view of the Bible that was developed that while our pioneers rejected it, has impacted our church, especially after the death of Ellen White. And while we've never formally embraced that definition of inspiration, all too often we've treated the Bible as though we have embraced it that way and treated Ellen White that way at times as well. Now that's one influence, but there's another influence on the opposite side, what we call the liberal influence, And they said, no, the Bible isn't perfect. It's not propositionally perfect. All we have are copies. So really what's important is your experience. And the Bible can tell you, give stories of people who have experiences with God. It's not true in the sense of telling us absolute truths about reality. You need to have your own experience with God. And they moved away from a belief in miracles and a belief in um, uh, that, that the Bible told us true statements about the universe, about creation. And in the 60s and 70s, the Adventist church in some circles became more influenced by that brand of Christian theology. And so today, Adventism is caught in some ways between these two competing larger views of the world, but Adventism itself is neither at its core liberal or fundamentalist. It is biblical, which is, has a somewhat different view than both those extremes. So in talking about these topics, I've generally identified, talked about creation and the moral government of God, um, scriptural authority. There's usually not sort of a right side and a wrong side. There's two extremes where we've been influenced by one of these competing streams of thought. And then there's a moderate middle ground that we often actually find greater insight to in the reformers and some of our pioneers. And this can help us see where we are pulled in two directions uh, by these other philosophies. 
And the same is true of uh, what I'm calling Adventism, perfection, and the final generation. Um, and I'm going to set up my discussion of history by talking a little bit more about uh, the present, or at least the last 50 years in the Adventist church. Before I came to the seminary, the position that I hold in the church history department uh, was held by uh, quite a well-known scholar who's now retired, uh, George Knight. Uh, and Professor Knight had an educational background, but went into church history, was one of the most prolific authors in the Adventist church for a long, long time, written on lots and lots of things. And um, I think uh, Professor Knight, if I could write half of what he wrote, I would have had a very successful scholarly career. Uh, and that remains to be seen whether I can do that. And so I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, he had some very important insights into Adventist history, um, though I don't necessarily agree with him on everything. Um, and I'll share with you where I think he's made some important insights and perhaps where I would try to enrich uh, some of his observations. But one of his burdens was in this area of last generation theology. And he went through what he described as a very legalistic, conservative stage of his life where he tried to be perfect. He was going to be the first Adventist to be perfect. And he spent a lot of time doing that until he burned out and became, by his own uh, um, uh, testimony, uh, agnostic and went out into the world and studied philosophy until he had another uh, conversion experience and came back to the church. But in analyzing the story of Adventism, uh, Professor Knight suggests that there came into Adventism a stream of final generation theology through a theologian in the early 1940s and 50s called M.L. Andreessen. And Professor Knight suggests that in his book, The Sanctuary Service, Andreessen added or created conceptions of theology in the last generation that were unique to him. Now, let me set this out, and I'll suggest that, that, that Professor Knight has perhaps overstated his case, but there is, I believe, some truth to what he says. Um, he says he makes three points. Three points. Um, he suggests, Professor Knight suggests, that um, M. L. Andreessen made perfection perfection of individual Christians, of Adventists, as somehow part of God's atonement for, uh, as part of the plan of salvation um, and necessary for the salvation of the final generation, that somehow this victory over sin, this perfection, was connected in some ways with salvation, with the plan of salvation and with receiving salvation at the time of the end. He also suggested that perfection became a primarily a law-oriented, works-focused, externally standard, measured condition. And finally, that perfection created, the, the perfection that Emil Andreessen was proposing, was creating an internally focused uh, question of personal holiness and purity, which caused people to turn in and look at themselves. Now, I'm not sure that Professor Knight is exactly right in blaming M.L. Andreessen for all those things. I do think I've gone and read Andreessen myself, and I think that there were some perhaps overstatements about um, the perfection of the final generation playing a role and connecting it to Christ's atonement, which I don't think uh, was perhaps the most healthy way of framing it. But what I think has happened is that certain fundamentalist elements in the church, influenced by the larger fundamentalist movement, which puts an emphasis on orthodoxy and external um, um, absolute standards of either truth or right and wrong, and have taken these elements and heightened these tendencies um, and created a vision of perfection in the final generation which is somewhat different than that as envisioned by Ellen White and some of the reformers. Now I want to go uh, next and look at the three things, um, the, 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 the three opposite points.
points that I've made to these first three, but I will agree that, uh, that Professor Knight, for all his observations, does not explore, perhaps see, that what, Elder, uh, the, that what Professor Andreasen was setting out, much of what um, Professor Knight criticizes can actually be found in some of the writings of Ellen White and Scripture. And I'm not sure uh, that, that Professor Knight has been um, fully cognizant of that in his critiques of Andreasen. But there are some differences between the two. Um, and so let me set out what I see as the fundamentalist extreme on this position, and then I'll talk about the liberal reaction, and that will set up our study of church history uh, to help us see where perhaps the middle ground is. The fundamentalist position on victory over sin has tended, in some circles, to take on a salvation focused, uh, a salvation focus, I should, I should put it. There's a suggestion or there's an experience that there's a different standard for those living at the end of time. If you want to be saved throughout history, you can be saved without being absolutely perfect because you'll die before the close of probation and uh, you'll always have a mediator. But if you want to be saved at the end of time, you have to have perfect victory over sin and since we're living at the end of time now, how can you have assurance of salvation without having perfection as well? It tends to be externally focused and command-oriented, which causes an inward focus on our own attainments. The question sometimes becomes, and I'm not saying anyone actually says this, but the implication is, and I know because I've experienced it, Am I measuring up to the standards of the Ten Commandments, all the other biblical injunctions, all of what Ellen White says, and what the Holy Spirit might convict me of perfectly so I can be saved in these last days? Now, properly understood, we want to do all those things, right? But do I want to have to have done all those things before I have the assurance of salvation? And if perfection is required in the last days, and these are the last days then the feeling is I can only have assurance if I've done these things. And I know from my own personal experience and the experience I've seen in others that this is all too often the experience that has been part of the discussion of perfection in the Adventist church. Now, there's been a reaction against this experience, this feeling of legalism in our church from the liberal side of the church, which is to say perfection isn't possible. It's unbiblical. It's not taught by the Bible. That either... Uh, that character perfection is an unattainable ideal. It's like a north star, right, uh, versus a harbor light. You can get to a harbor light, but you can't get to the north star. It's just an ideal we should strive for, and then God will come and take us there when he comes from heaven. But that's not really biblical. Uh, another approach is to say, well, character perfection is only a legal idea. When we're converted, Christ's character stands in for ours, and we're perfect. And that's the end of the story. And all Christians who have faith are perfect, and we don't need any more discussion about it. We're all perfect as soon as we are accepted in Christ. But this, these approaches overlook biblical and spirit of prophecy statements about the possibility of perfection and victory over sin, especially in the final days. You can't get around those quotes. When I was a young person, I was shown them, and they haven't changed since then. But what has changed is my understanding of what Ellen White and the Bible actually mean when they say perfection. And there lies a very important lesson of history. And I'm going to summarize the points that emerge uh, from these historical figures we're going to look at, and then we'll look at their actual quotes. And the three important points that emerge is that perfection is concerned primarily with what I call theodicy. It is something that happens at the time of the end that God does in his people for the glorification of God's character and the culmination of the great controversy to show that, in fact, uh, God is capable of saving people and saving them fully from sin, and the focus is not salvation. Yes, all those saved in the end will have overcome sin, because they've gone through this experience, but they don't have the assurance of that salvation until they attain the perfection. 
They're saved like everybody else is saved down through history, by faith in Christ and in his righteousness. The second point that emerges, so it's, it's not soteriology, it's, it's theodicy. The second point that emerges is that it's love, a perfection of love and not legalism. Perfection that is concerned with motives, not legalistically defined external conduct. Now, are the two completely separated? If you have perfect motives, are you going to be doing wrong things all the time? No, but the two are important. They're connected, and yet they're different. Um, If the focus is on motives, first of all, there's an allowance for mistakes, ignorance, and errors. You can do the most loving thing possible, but you may misunderstand, you may not be informed, you may not do that which is you may make mistakes, even if you're perfectly well-motivated. What if God's, uh, and, 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 and just as important to that, there's an allowance for human freedom. Because with this sort of fundamentalist view of perfection, there's a sense that, yeah, there's the Ten Commandments, and then there's everything else in the Bible, and there's what Ellen White wrote, and there's also what God prompts us to do through the Holy Spirit. And that's a lot of different things to live up to. And if perfection is defined primarily as Um, carrying out the commands of outside agencies, whether they be laws or commands or impressions from the Holy Spirit, we can lead people into a sense that um, moment by moment they need to be following the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if everything they're doing is not in accord with with their being directed or should be directed to do, then they are falling away and not meeting the standard of perfection. Now, maybe many of you haven't encountered that experience in your life, but I've had enough friends who have been maybe on the edge uh, psychologically anyway, and when they're confronted with this kind of theology, it pushes them over the edge. I've had friends in mental institutions because they feel they're not quite living up to that voice of what God is telling them to do. What if God's will for you is not something that he tells you moment by moment, Now, don't get me wrong. We should be open to the Holy Spirit moment by moment. He may want to tell me something at this very moment. But what if most of the time God's will for me or you is for you to do what it is that you want to do within the parameters of his law? What if it is that, yes, he can specially guide us and impress us with his Holy Spirit, but he wants us free to follow the desires and impulses of our renewed minds. Does that give you a new sense of what then God's will and perfection can be about? Uh, This isn't something I'm just making up. I think it's a very important teaching of Scripture. Personal freedom, becoming a Christian, is about achieving freedom, not about becoming a puppet of a higher force, as though every act and word that is directly uh, dictated to us Galatians 5.1 puts this very well. And of course, this is the book written to those that are laboring under this kind of legalism. It is for freedom that Christ has made us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject to a yoke of slavery. God's will is that we be free, that we... God could have made us robots, right? But he wants us to be who we are, who he made us to be. He doesn't want us sinning. He wants us carrying out this freedom within the parameters of his law, One of my favorite texts from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. Young man, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Now that's within the context of God's law because the next phrase goes on to say, but remember these things, you will be brought into judgment. But the point is, and of course the context is, the converted and renewed mind. But once you've had this experience, God wants you to live a life fully following those things that you love and desire within the boundaries of his, of his law. But it's certainly a different view. It's a perfection that springs from the motivations within, not trying to align yourself with a series of commands and rules from without. I'm not denying the Ten Commandments. You know I'm not doing that. It's, it's the mirror that continues to suggest whether, in fact, you're fooling yourself about your motives and your desires. If your motives and desires are suddenly taking you contrary to one of the Ten Commandments, You're not in touch with God in the way you should be. And it becomes a check. It brings you back. The third point is that the perfection that we find in this strand of Protestant theology 
doesn't cause an inward focus like a navel gazing, it becomes outward focused. Ironically, the people that were concerned about perfection in the 1830s and 40s, they were the ones that were most zealous to do away with slavery, to work with society, to bring this perfection, if you will. They knew they couldn't perfect society, but they had a duty to try to make it as good as possible for everybody they could as possible. Uh, fighting against social injustice, righting wrongs, feeding the poor, freeing the slaves. And all too often in our more modern versions of Adventism, that hasn't been the case so much. It's been more of a retreat from the world and focusing on making ourselves the best people we can be and not, uh, not helping cure or work with society's ills. So let's go back in history and look at it. Those of you who were here earlier heard my lecture on the moral government of God. And how I suggested it was a view of God opening himself up to the standards of justice and right and wrong, and that Jacob Arminius was one of the early reformers who helped develop this, known for his belief in the freedom of the will, that humans could choose right and wrong, of course, only through the grace of Christ, through provenient grace. But Interestingly, this teaching on perfection and the possibility of overcoming sin also comes through this same line of thought, these moral government of God thinkers. And it's Arminius who opposes the Calvinist teaching and actually comments on Romans 7, the good that I would I cannot do and that which I want to do I can't do. Calvin said that's the converted man. We're just always going to be sinning and always falling. And Arminius says, no, this is the convicted man, but not the converted man. Now, Arminius wasn't absolutely clear on whether Christian perfection was possible, but he left open the possibility and said we shouldn't deny it. The scripture seems to allow for this. We should allow for it. He didn't give a final word on it. But it was clear that he opened the door to it. But it was equally as clear that perfection was not the basis of assurance of salvation in his scheme, was it? It was justification. Perfection was perhaps something that could come later on. Now I mentioned Wesley uh, being a follower of Arminius and the moral government of God and unsurprisingly Wesley also embraced an understanding of Christian perfection. He had a couple of uh, quite famous sermons and treatises on this, a plain account of Christian perfection and thoughts on Christian perfection. He developed the Wesley holiness tradition with a belief in victory over sin or perfection. It's unsurprising that Ellen White uh, should be acquainted with this because she was raised, what, a Methodist. So she came out of this tradition, and while she did not agree fully with Wesley on every point of his understanding of perfection, it's clear that some elements of her thought are similar, very similar, and echo uh, Wesley in a number of ways. Wesley was clear that perfection wasn't the basis of our assurance, not something we had to attain before we could uh, uh, rely on or, or have the security and the peace of salvation. This was something beyond salvation for a greater intimacy with God and the glory of God. Now, he differed from Ellen White as he viewed it as a sort of instantaneous event. He called it a second blessing. And he believed that it put people beyond the possibility of sinning. Now, he never claimed this for himself. Wesley didn't. And Ellen White obviously did not accept those elements of it. She didn't view it as instantaneous. She viewed it as a process. And that on this earth, with your sinful nature, you would never be beyond the possibility of sinning. But she and Wesley would agree on perfection not being the basis of salvation and the focus being a perfection of love, Okay, which is the second important point. And I'm quoting from Wesley here. What is Christian perfection in his little... Uh, a handbook on thoughts on Christian perfection. The loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This implies that no wrong temper more contrary to love remains in the soul and that all the thoughts, words, and actions are governed by pure love. He was fond of saying it's a perfection of love. Elsewhere he said, perfection is nothing higher and nothing lower than this. The pure love of God and man the loving God with all our heart and soul and our neighbor as ourselves. It is love governing the heart and life, running through all our tempers, words, and actions. So there's a central focus on the motivations and the motivations of the heart being fully mature and perfect. 
he had some warnings about perfection because he realized that it could be misused. And as I read his list, I feel him seeking to uh, contemporary Adventism in some of his concerns. Uh, pride and self-centeredness. It's just when there's a focus on external perfectionism, on reaching standards and focusing, making those the focus, uh, there becomes a worry about myself, a focus on myself, uh, that can turn into a kind of narcissism. I'm so concerned about myself and not so much about other people. I'm frustrated with myself for not reaching these standards. This frustration flows out onto other people because I hold these standards up to them as well. He says we have to avoid enthusiasm and fanaticism, false visions, dreams, and voices. Um, and this is an important point, antinomianism, making void any part of the law. There's some perfectionists, even in early Adventism many years ago, that disconnected perfection from law-keeping and said, well, I'm perfect now, that means everything I do is okay, even if it looks like I'm breaking the law. And Wesley said no. And there's a very important uh, quote here. God has adopted every point of the moral law and grafted it into the law of love. See that? So while the focus is love... It's not a denial of the standards of the Ten Commandments. Wesley said all of the moral law is engrafted into the law of love. But what's the focus? The focus is on the love and the motivation. Uh, we have the mirror to make sure we're not fooling ourselves. But it's an internal... And sometimes people feel like, whoa, you're lowering the standard. You're, you're talking about a perfection of love, not about a perfection of law. We need to focus on the law. But if you think about this, what seems harder to do? To make a list of do's and do nots and go through the day and try to avoid doing the things you're not supposed to do, or to go through the day perfectly loving every human being you come into contact with. Which is harder? Be honest, right? We can try to do a list, but when we need to perfectly love everyone to come into contact with, we can only do that if we're in touch with Christ and with God on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. It's not a lower standard. It's a higher standard in some ways, but it's a higher standard that's less ultimately frustrating and overwhelming. It's one that uh, has me wanting to be in touch with God, not focused on my own efforts. Beware of sins of omission. See, focus on external conduct can actually cause me to overlook all the things that I could be doing. You know, thou shalt not do this and that and the other thing. What about all the things that I could be doing if I was really looking at the people around me with love? Above all, be aware of schism, of making a rent in the church of Christ. Beware of a divisive spirit. Have we seen any sense of divisiveness or antagonism sometimes in the church associated with those pushing a certain kind of perfection agenda? It, it seems to, for some reason, have gone hand in hand. Now, it wasn't just Wesley that believed this, but I also talked about Usually Calvinists were opposed to perfection because of their emphasis on, strong emphasis on original sin. But these new school Presbyterians, the one that came to understand God's moral government of love, actually moved towards adopting a view of perfection themselves. Charles Finney, the great evangelist in the Second Great Awakening, Asa Mahan, they were both founders of Oberlin College. Oberlin perfectionism is a contemporary with early Ellen White. And it also was characterized by three things. Purpose for God's glory, not obtaining salvation. Motives of love, not external standards. And outwardly focus in helping others. Here's Charles Finney on Christian perfection. Christianity requires that we should do neither more nor less than the law of God prescribes. It is true that the gospel does not require perfection as the condition of salvation. So again, Finney's making very clear assurance of salvation before we're concerned with this issue. But no part of the obligation of the law is discharged. The gospel holds those who are under it to the same holiness as those under the law. This is a pretty high standard. This is very Adventist in its understanding. But again, not a condition of salvation. And again, a focus on love. I am to show, Finney says, what Christian perfection is or what is the duty actually required in the text. It is perfect obedience to the law of God. The law of God requires perfect, disinterested, impartial benevolence, love to God, and love to our neighbor. It requires that we should be actuated by the same feeling and to act on the same principle that God acts upon, to leave self out of the question. 
Again, a very high standard, but one that's focused on our connection with uh, God and our motives in that connection. And as far as the third point about social activism and outreach, Asa Mahan was president of Oberlin College. The first, um, he admitted women and admitted blacks to a college at a time when both of these were unheard of. The connection he made between perfection, love, and social concern and action was very clear in his writings and to historians. Uh, one historian said Christian perfection was the foundation for his work in opposition to slavery, his efforts on behalf of women, and his advocacy of social reform. Uh, Mahan himself put it, perfection and holiness implies a full and perfect discharge of our entire duty. Um, in the final, it is loving the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. It implies the entire absence of all selfishness and the perpetual presence and all-pervading influence of pure and perfect love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Now what about Ellen White? See, now that I've made these three points, I think if you go back and read Ellen White's text on perfection and you see the context that she's writing in, you will find that she's emphasizing these three same points made by these other Protestant thinkers, and not so much the points that are often emphasized in contemporary discussions or presentations of perfection. Emphasis on God's glory, uh, love rather than, and not instead of, but the emphasis on love. Uh, and an external other focus rather than a self-focus. Let's just look at a few of her statements on this. Ellen White and God's honor and glory. The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of his love. So the Spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing his grace to the world. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. So what's the focus here? The honor of God, the honor of Christ... Our work is to strive to attain in our sphere of action the perfection that Christ in his life on the earth attained in every phase of his character. He is our example. In all things, we are to strive to honor God in character. Uh, the honor of Christ must stand complete in the perfection of the character of his chosen people. But what about the assurance of salvation? She disconnects that from perfection. There are many who seem to feel that they have a great work to do themselves before they can come to Christ for his salvation. They seem to think that Jesus will come in at the very last of their struggle and give them help by putting the finishing touch to their life work. They lose sight of the fact that Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life. When we individually rest upon Christ with full assurance of faith, trusting alone to the efficacy of his blood to cleanse from all sin, we shall have peace in believing that what God has promised he is able to perform. Do we have peace only when he performs it? Or do we have the peace when we believe it and now we're open to him performing it? It's an important, critical distinction. Uh, and it's the difference between legalism and faith. Say with the Apostle Paul, Ellen White says, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Rest in God. He is able to keep that which you have committed to him. If you will leave yourself in his hands, he will bring you off more than conqueror through him that has loved you. Has he already brought you off as more than conqueror? Well, it sounds like it's something, a work that still needs to be done, but you can have assurance now that he will do that. The difference between, and often I share this with students, is between legalism and true righteousness by faith is whether you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Are you working out that which you already have, or are you working towards that which you do not have? If you are working out that which you have, you can do so with peace and assurance and uh, a motivation of love. If you are working toward that which you do not have, you are going to be working out of a sense of fear and unhappiness and ultimately frustration. She also has this focus on perfection and love. True sanctification, through comes, true sanctification comes through the working out of the principle of love. 
God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Many, though striving to obey God's commandments, have little peace or joy. Such do not correctly represent sanctification. The Lord would have all his sons and daughters happy, peaceful, and obedient. True sanctification means perfect love, perfect obedience, perfect conformity to the will of God. We tend to focus on those last two statements, and not on the very first one she says, right? Perfect obedience, perfect conformity, but she begins it with perfect love, out of which only the other two can flow. You know, this is seen in the Ten Commandments itself. The Ten Commandments themselves can be a tablet of both the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. There is a grammatical ambiguity in the thou shalt nots. They can be understood as they generally are as imperatives, meaning, you know, you better not go and kill or steal or lust or commit adultery. The conjunction, the, 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 the um, Dr. Richard Davidson, the Old Testament scholar at Andrews, uh, tells me that they can be understood in a different way as being uh, future descriptions of what you will be. In other words, you will, if you trust in God, you will not kill, you will not commit adultery, you will not hate. This is the difference between the law being on the outside, commanding you as to what to do and not to do, and the law being on the inside, telling you, in fact, who you are and who have you become and who you can continue to be as you may in contact with Christ. And as far as you're under it, trying to reach something that you don't have that's outside you, you're working towards a salvation you don't have. True religion, and then the third point about perfection and, and dealing with others. True religion will lead its possessor on to perfection. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, as well as your appetites and passions must be brought into subjection to the will of God. You must bear fruit unto holiness. Then you will be led to defend the poor, the fatherless, the motherless, and the afflicted. You will do justice to the widow and will relieve the needy. You will deal justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. It's very interesting that Ellen White takes this thing that we usually just relate to righteousness by faith and victory over sin, and she puts it into this whole social context about the things we'll be doing for those around us, which is just what Oberlin uh, College was doing, and it reflects the understanding of perfection of the day. And we shouldn't be surprised. It's the context of Matthew 5.48. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven and perfect is exactly in the context of loving your enemies, doing good to others. It wasn't so focused about issues of personal holiness, although it's not disconnected from that. Um, there's a final point that I think Ellen White brings out more clearly than the other reformers did. Once again, I want to point out that she's drawing from a tradition, but then going beyond that tradition and, and building on it. It was something they hinted at, but which she sees more clearly. That perfection, bringing us closer to God, is actually bringing us closer to a greater experience of joy in the Christian life. Now, how often do we think of victory over sin and perfection and joy in the same breath? And yet this is the context that Ellen White sets it out in, and the, and the rest of the Bible does as well. What a God is our God. He rules over his kingdom with diligence and care, and he has built a hedge, the Ten Commandments, about his subjects to preserve them from the results of transgression. In requiring obedience to the laws of his kingdom, God gives his people health and happiness, peace and joy. He teaches them that the perfection of character he requires can be attained only by becoming familiar with his word. But the perfection of character means you're coming closer to God and the hindrances of sin, which are the things that bring depression and unhappiness, are falling away. The Bible talking about closer to God, closer to joy, and even closer to pleasure. The Bible is actually high on pleasure, not worldly pleasure that's destructive, but pleasures that even we in the world realize are enjoyable and uplifting. Here are some of my favorite verses. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. Delight yourself also in the heart, in the Lord, and he shall give you 
the desires of your heart. Psalms 37, 4. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. And then more from this text that I quoted earlier. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Now, as Adventists, all too often we focused on that very final phrase. Remember, God's going to bring you into judgment for all the things that you want to do, so be careful. But really, the way this is framed, the emphasis is on the first part. It's obviously in the context of a renewed heart, of a converted heart. Follow your heart. Do those things that bring you life and pleasure. Remember, of course, that there are moral boundaries for your own good, and you need to keep that in mind. Uh, but otherwise, you are free to follow this pathway of joy. The New Testament is uh, full of these things if we uh, focus on them. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Why is it that all too often our experience with perfection as Adventists has not brought freedom from fear, but has brought a kind of fear with it. I know, I've experienced it in my own life. It's because in many, many instances, I think we've had the wrong focus, and the right focus would bring us this love and joy and freedom from fear. You can't really have joy when you have fear, but you can't have fear when you have joy. Is joy only a principle that we can have in the absence of positive feelings and experience that we often associate with pleasure and play? You know, we often like to say that love is a principle, so I can really dislike you as a person, but I'm going to choose to love you, right? Um, but joy is something harder to not associate with positive feelings. And it's not that we can always be giddily happy and we have difficulties and sadnesses, and yet underneath it all, we can have a joy that we know everything's going to come out all right in the end. There is a joy that that can undergird even our times and experiences of difficulty and grieving. C.S. Lewis says this about desires and joy. It's become a, a favorite quote of mine. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What is the chief end of man, says the old catechism? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, John Piper proposes a modification to this, uh, which I think is supported in some ways by things that Ellen White and the Bible say. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The worship, what is the highest pleasure in the universe? We have a picture of it, I think, in the book of Revelation of the unfallen beings and some who have been redeemed around God's throne bringing praises to God, worshiping God, adoring the most beautiful, perfect object in the universe. And doing that brings the greatest joy. Does God require this because he's a narcissist who has to have this? No. What, is, what do people enjoy more in this world than going and worshiping and shouting at their favorite celebrities or sports teams or concerts? You know, it's the thing to do. Many of those that went out yesterday uh, from door to door had trouble speaking to some of the men because unfortunately you all went out when the Seattle Seahawks were playing their football game, right? And you have grown men shouting in their living rooms, celebrating, and this is what's bringing them joy. But how much more celebrate worthy is God, the creator of the universe, and how much joy is there when we truly fully worship and celebrate him? 
This is what perfection is ultimately about. If we understand that unity with God and the praise and worship connected with that is the highest human joy and pleasure, then perfect unity with God should be our greatest desire and longing and joy. Sin is anything that disrupts this pathway to full joy, deepest pleasure, and most profound fellowship and worship. Would we view perfection in the last generation theology differently if we understood complete victory over sin as the perfection of love, absence of fear, and full joy, fellowship, and true pleasure? I think that's a final generation people would love to be a part of. Thank you for your time and attention over this session in the last few days. God bless you in all of your efforts to walk closer and more joyfully with Him as we learn from each other and as we continue to try to learn from the great cloud of witnesses, the reformers in the church that have preceded us. It's been a pleasure to spend this time with you. God bless you all. Um, I think we've got a few minutes left that we could entertain some questions. Uh, there was a, do we have another mic? Or maybe I'll just repeat the questions as they come. Are there any questions about uh, this presentation or even any of the preceding ones? I suppose we can make this a catch-all session. I do have some that have been texted to me, so while you're thinking... When the times of refreshing come... So the question is about the blotting out of sin and the times of refreshing uh, that Peter talks about in the book of Acts. And, um, I mean, what is your question about that? Yeah. That text is a little bit ambiguous. I mean, I certainly believe in the Day of Atonement in 1844 and the cleansing of the sanctuary, and that is a text that we have connected with that. I've been studying that with my wife recently because we're having some sanctuary studies with a neighbor of ours, and um, there's some other ways of, if you look at newer translations, it seems to suggest that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing will come. And it's not absolutely clear that this is a reference to uh, the Day of Atonement. There's some ambiguity to it. But I think that whether or not that refers to the Day of Atonement, we do know there is a time when sins will finally be blotted out because of the sanctuary service. Um, Ellen White has some very clear and strong statements in The Great Controversy that there comes a time when Christ leaves the sanctuary and does not act as an intercessor before he comes to the earth, and there will be a period of time when Christians live not without a Savior, notice. We always have a Savior through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We will always need God's grace and presence. But there comes a period when apparently the sanctuary is not necessary. Now, the way I would understand that is it's not necessary because everyone is fully committed and settled in and committed to Christ and being held by him. Um, and so, once again... It's not, we don't have to turn this into a doctrine about salvation. It's a doctrine about God's glory. All those that could be saved are saved, and the sanctuary is of no use anymore. All those who are going to love God do and are fully rested in him, and no more sinners are going to repent. So God is able to shut it down. Yeah. So I have a question here on... Um, let me see if I can... It's a question about the nature of Christ and uh, Knight's view of it and Andreasen's view of it. And that's a whole complicated topic that I would need another presentation to handle carefully. And uh, I think that we will never perfectly know uh, the nature that Christ had. I think in reading the spirit of prophecy and the Bible, there's two important truths that emerge. That Christ is sufficiently unlike us to be our Savior. If he was just like us, he couldn't save us. But he was also sufficiently like us to be our example. 
and that we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, follow his example. Um, and uh, I'm firmly convicted on both points. Uh, but uh, there's a whole presentation that could and should be done on that. That's just not this presentation today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think moral perfection and the perfection of love are ultimately united. It's just a question of which direction you approach it from. And if you approach it from the, from the moral side exclusively, you tend to get hung up in rules and external standards. If you approach it from the love side, that's the proper way to get the moral side right. So I'm not denying moral perfection. I'm just saying this is the wrong, it's the wrong way to go about telling someone how to be perfect. In light of that, the follow-up question, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and so, you know, Wesley, he makes this point clear that the entire moral law is engrafted on the law of love, right? But what do you start with? Right? This is a very important point. Israel started with a moral law, and they failed. And we need to start with a law of love, and ironically, we will succeed where they failed. And it's, import, it's an important reframing of the issue that has profound experiential consequences, at least in my experience and, and observations. David. What do you think? Well, you know, it, it might be easier to use the word mature, but the fact is the Bible and Ellen White use the word perfect and perfection. And so I don't think we can abandon that, but I also think we have to recognize that term has been abused and misused. And there's this, you know, I keep using this word fundamentalist, but, but, it, but it is appropriate in terms of an attempt to show externally perfect, um, sort of scientifically absolute uh, ex, uh, you know, focused on external standards in a way that is a product of our modern thinking and not of the way Ellen White or the reformers thought about perfection in terms of an internal motivation, which would move to and make obvious external differences. So I think there, there, that there is a, a profound rethinking of this that happened somewhere in the 19, between the 1920s and 1950s which has made perfection a very difficult thing for the church to deal with uh, because it has often been abused uh, and, and, and been connected with legalism. And we can be perfect at every stage of development, and, and yet there's quotation she has about this special, this goal, this, there's an ultimate, there's, and there's a final group that's going to achieve this, and... It's hard to discount those passages as much as we would like to, and I think we have to come to a, a more positive understanding of what they actually mean. And uh, I hope I'm, what I'm proposing is helpful in that direction. Um, is, so, 
Right. But I believe Mr. Colbert just said um, the latter the latter rain comes as in plants, um, where the metaphor is used to give us that last piece of nutrition. Um, but and we know that the latter rain will come in the end times. But is it possible prior to that for a person to obtain that perfection in love? Or is it only exclusive to the last generation? And Yeah. Carrying out the affirmative love requirements of the law is much more difficult than carrying out the negative uh, commands, if you will. The first question? What was the first question? I'm on the second question. Oh, the latter rain. Yeah. Well, we seem to have the example of Enoch, don't we? And Enoch is given as an example of those at the end of time who will achieve, have the same experience. And um, so I don't think it's something that's exclusive to the last days. But I think in the last days, what happens? Pressures are brought to bear. Um, things are seen far more clearly. The distinction between good and evil and right and wrong. And people are forced to make choices which are deeper and more profound, and therefore these characteristics are more fully expressed in their lives. Uh, let's go on the back to uh, Jonathan. You know that's a good that's a good uh, that's a good question. It's um, I mean I guess I would say this. You know if you choose to stop smoking, have you actually sanctified yourself? Is not smoking holiness? You know you can stop smoking and still not be holy. And that's good that you're not doing it, but are you loving? I mean, you know, this is first, it comes to 1 Corinthians, isn't it? I can give my body to be burned. I can give all my goods to the poor. These are external acts that seem to show love, but, but, but does it really make me loving? And I think that the only thing that really makes me loving is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, can I cooperate? Can, I, can he help me remove obstacles to receiving that love? Yeah. Yeah. But, but we've got to remember that the actual change, the actual love is coming from, from God. And, and I can only do these things with the right motives and the right love insofar as I've received that grace and that power from God to do it. convicted but not converted. This was Arminius's view, and, and I think is a, you know, there's a lot of different views on it, but anyway, it's a view I'm comfortable with, yeah. It just seems to me that, that there is a, we have a positive view, whether the power comes from, from ourselves or from God, not to sin, and we need to be motivated by something other from love. What we do know, because, because if you wait till I love not to drink it, a, 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 a bottle of 
Now, I, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic with, with your view here in the sense of God uses all sorts of motivations to get us to come to him, right? We often say, well, God, people are attracted by love, but God uses fear. There's some prophecies in the Bible that are kind of scary, and he challenges people. But those fears and those challenges aren't the things that make people holy. Those are the things that hopefully get people's attention and get them to come to God and that their then motivations might be changed so they can actually begin doing the right things. So, yeah, I don't know. Let me move on to another question and maybe somebody else will help clarify this. Let's go here and then to Chester and then Leanne. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I hate carrying out the garbage, but I love my wife. Yeah. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> I hate garbage. This motivation of what we are, I mean, scientists are coming more and more to understand that really we use our reason and our brain to justify those things that we otherwise love doing. We'll give a whole lot of reasons for why we do something, but ultimately we do it because we want to do it. And the Bible talks about humans being, you know, three parts, heart, mind, and soul, right? And for many Adventists, we know what the right things are, and our heart is kind of committed to doing it. We want to be a Christian, we go to church. But I understand the soul is that seat of the body where our affections actually lie. And all too often, we know what the right thing to do is, we're sort of committed to it, but our souls have been shaped by popular culture, popular music, popular whatever it is. And so when the time of temptation comes, do we do the things that we know we should do and that we think we're committed to, or do we do those things that our desires have actually been shaped to appreciate? And all too often, it's that. And that's the thing that's often missing in this talk of victory over sin. We make more and more lists of the things we ought to do, and we commit ourselves to those lists like the children of Israel did. And we overlook the affection soul building that would actually give us the motivation to do those things. That's where I think we've often fallen short in this discussion. Uh, Chester and then Leanne. Yeah, that was sort of right. Not smoking and, and, and do is is not holiness or perfection. Yeah. And, and, and that's right, and, the, and, the, and, and connected with that is that we have the peace and assurance of salvation at that moment of change and conversion rather than having to wait for it until we've attained these other things. That's the difference between a life of grace and a life of legalism, a life of frustration and a life of peace. Uh, Leanne. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and it's choosing God, isn't it? That's the choice we have. This is what Arminius would say. We can't choose to do those things on our own. The choice we have is to choose God. Then there's a change. Then we can choose these other things, right? But we have the peace and assurance of salvation before we have to enter that other battle of choosing the things around us. And we can only do that successfully if we have that peace, assurance, and even joy. Danny. Amen. All right, we need to end. I have the signal. So let's have a short prayer as we part. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the conversation that we've had. I pray that it's given us deeper insights into both the ideas and the experiences that we can have uh, with you. And I pray that we all may enter into a uh, more joyful walk with Jesus Christ who can and uh, is our Savior and our friend. We pray these things. Pray that you'll be with the people as they finish their meetings and give them safety in their journeys home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.